Well, good morning. It is always good to be here with you um, under interesting circumstances. As Harry said, it is interesting. My good friend Jonathan Murphy is uh, preaching, not quite yet, but soon. Um, We had breakfast yesterday. Jonathan and I met um, the first day of seminary when we went to Dallas Seminary. Uh, He was an international student from Belfast, Northern Ireland, just outside of Belfast in Lisbon. Uh, I was coming from Canada. It was August 21st of 2000, my 29th birthday. We were there one week early for international student orientation where they uh, walk international students through all the details of what it's like to live in America, how to make a phone call, how to mail a letter, how to shop for groceries and so on. And uh, Jonathan and I found refuge in each other um, doing our own thing that uh, first week and became uh, good friends. And so we, we were actually having breakfast yesterday and uh, sort of realized I would be teaching this hour and he would be preaching this hour. And and we're kind of competitive. He grew up uh, playing soccer, what he would call football, uh, European soccer and uh, some rugby. Uh, I played some hockey and so on growing up. And in the competitiveness, we actually have a bet who will finish first. So let's close in prayer. It's not true. There's no bet. There's no bet. We, we did have breakfast yesterday and we did uh, laugh and talk, but uh, there is no bet on who will finish first. Um, he, can, he can have it as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it is good to be with you. I, uh, I've been thinking about some of the craziness in our, in our uh, world today, in the world in which we live, some of the things that are being said, some of the things that come from our culture, uh, uh, some of the things that uh, uh, people are, uh, are very important to some people, to certain groups of people, some of the uh, fears that are out there. It seems to be a, a time when there's great fear over a lot of things or a lot lot of things that we ought to be fearful of, at least according uh, to some people. I kind of think back through time, and when I was younger, growing up in, in the 70s, uh, it was uh, the possibility of nuclear holocaust. I mean, what would happen with the Soviet Union and with the United States? What would, if, if that would ever come to war, you know, the, the fear of the possibility of complete annihilation uh, of the earth, that was a, a fearful thing. It seemed for a while that, I'm not really sure how to place this, maybe late 90s or so, maybe early 2000, the idea of a meteorite hitting us wasn't that a big deal for, for some time? If it hits us, it knocks us out of orbit and we all fall off or, or on. Or so. I, I didn't know which way we fell, but it, it was supposed to wipe everything out. And, 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 and so that was a thing. And for some, that was a big thing. And, and what should we do? And maybe some research and, and, and you know, maybe NASA could be involved in, in, in some kind of early warning system. All those kinds of things uh, had been discussed and, and so on. Uh, today, it seems to be uh, often related to climate, uh, global warming, or or climate change and so on, if I understand correctly, uh, if the world heats up, that the polar ice caps will melt and flood us all, and, and, and that, that'll be complete annihilation. And, and that's been a, a big thing, right? For, for some people, that's very... That's, that's very real, and, and, and it's promoted, and, and it's, it's, it's often promoted in the form of fear, which is very common uh, throughout history, throughout time, that, that there are messages of fear that challenge, if you will, the people of God. 
Well, I was thinking of that whole uh, global warming. The, the ice, you know, as a Canadian, I always think, you know, if the if the if the ice would melt up north, it'd be kind of a good thing. But I guess I, I obviously don't know what what's going on. But the idea of a global global flood, I was kind of thinking Genesis nine uh, eleven to thirteen. God is speaking with Noah, and He says, "I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood." Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. So we have the covenant. It's not going to happen. And we have the sign of the covenant I'm making between me, God is saying, and you to Noah and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it'll be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That is a sign that there will never be a global flood again. And so while there are those proposing fear, what if global warming, what if the polar ice caps melt, uh, what, what if there's a, 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 a universal flood of some sort, a, a, a global flood, and God says it's not going to happen. And so it is often that the fear of the culture is really a direct attack on the word of God. And so for us, it seems that as we have lots of things in the news, lots going on, this is going on, and what about that? And, and, and again, fear has been, you know, with the coronavirus and, 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 and all the things we wonder, what can we do? What should we do? What's wise? What's prudent? What, uh, how contagious is it? And what happens if we get it? And all those things. And it, it's hard. So many people saying so many things, and many in the spirit of fear, that, that we, this is something that we need to be really afraid of. And yet that is not the case in scripture, that is, believers are really have nothing to fear. That, that, that is, there is nothing to be afraid of. And so I thought, in light of some of the, the, the general tones of fear that we have in our culture, in light of some of the ideas of, of, you know, maybe global warming and melting ice caps and so on, that we should take this morning to remind ourselves some of the truths of what does happen next. I am not afraid of the polar ice caps melting and there being a global flood because there won't be, right? It's, it's, it's very true. It's not going to happen. We are not going to have a global flood. God will not let that happen again. He, he made that happen the first time. He will not allow that to happen again. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the truth of God's word. But we could ask ourselves, well, what does happen next? In other words, there's a spirit of fear out there that's often being put forward, but for us as believers, we ought to be sort of reminded and renewed of, it's probably not going to be global warming, we're probably not going to face a flood that'll wipe out the world, we will not, because God says we won't, but what will we face? And so I thought this morning we would look, uh, in this case, to 2 Peter chapter 3. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're just simply trying to answer and remind ourselves sort of what does happen, what will happen. It's probably not going to be a global flood that'll wipe everything out. As a matter of fact, it will not be that. But Peter's going to kind of help and remind us of some things that hopefully will be uh, helpful in our time together. So 2 Peter chapter 3, just to kind of remind you here, Peter is 
Uh, of course, one of the disciples, one of the sort of the, the outspoken disciples, one of Jesus' dear friends, and we see him throughout the Gospels, and, and in Jesus' ministry, we see him uh, loud and bold. Uh, sometimes we see him uh, uh, sort of putting his foot in his mouth, but we certainly see him trying throughout the Gospels. We, we, we kind of, we remember, of course, his denial of Jesus three times, and that tends to stand out, but we also shouldn't forget that once Jesus dies and resurrects. Once Jesus restores Peter, you remember he does that three times. He, he says, Peter, do you love me? And, Jesus, and Peter says, yes, Jesus, I love you. And, and Jesus says to Peter, then feed my sheep. And that's repeated three times as Jesus restores that. Jesus is only around 40 days after resurrection, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. He, he enters the holy throne room of God, and 10 days later on Pentecost, sends the Holy Spirit. Peter is full of the Holy Spirit. Things are now, he is empowered by the Spirit, and things become very clear for him. And it's really Peter who leads the church at, at Pentecost. We have Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and Peter being sort of this, this mighty apostle in sharing the gospel. We have Peter wrestling with Cornelius in the fact that this Gentile has, has in Acts chapter 10, this, this Gentile has received the Holy Spirit, and Peter ends up spending much of his ministry time in Rome amongst Gentiles, some Jews and mostly Gentiles in Rome. As a matter of fact, ultimately he's arrested in Rome, and if we have sort of the history, this is his last letter. He only writes two, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and it's being written from Rome, probably under arrest, and, and not exactly sure when Peter dies. Um, by early tradition, he is crucified, but doesn't want to be crucified like his Savior, and so has them invert the cross and is crucified upside down. So he may be writing this only, only months or maybe a few years from when uh, he'll actually die as a martyr for Christ. And so this is the last words that we have from Peter, and Peter is writing to a church, Gentile and Jew, that, 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 that's undergoing some fear, that people are saying some things. And I thought, well, how appropriate. We live in a time where people are saying things, and there's things that we're apparently supposed to be afraid of. And so Peter is writing, and I think the context is helpful. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Dear friends, Peter writes, uh, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, okay? So my thinking is our time together this morning hopefully will be a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking, right? We're getting messages in our culture of things that we need to be afraid of, and Peter says, Let's be reminded and, and, and sharpen our thinking, wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by holy prophets. That would be a reference to our Old Testament prophets, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, Micah and Malachi. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. That would be the New Testament, the, the words of the Lord, and then ultimately the writing of the apostles uh, uh, reminding us of the words of the Lord and at times explaining the words of the Lord. Verse 3, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Uh, uh, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, uh, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. 
Let's stop there for a moment and think about this. So from verse 3, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. That phrase, last days, sometimes uh, the apostles will use it as final days or end times. That is a phrase that Peter uses in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and he's quoting the book of Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel, that in these last days, the Spirit will be poured out. And of course, at at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is poured out surprisingly on everyone who believes. Now, the Spirit had been poured out before in the Old Testament. Saul been poured out for a period of time and then removed. Spirit had been on David. The Spirit had come on Samson on certain occasions. And so we see the Spirit a little bit here, and and we see the Spirit a little bit there, and we see the Spirit, if, if I can say it this way, occasionally in the Old Testament. And then when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, at Acts chapter 2, all of a sudden, all who believe are filled with the Holy Spirit. Revolutionary. The Old Testament saints never would have imagined that. The Spirit was something that only a few had, and generally only for a period of time, for, for a period of whatever was required by the Lord. And so the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes, that's the last days. That's the end. That's the final times. And so that word, those phrases, last days or final days or end times, is a reference to the coming of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ to the, lo- to, to the right hand of the Father, and ultimately the pouring of the Holy Spirit. The Christ event, if I can call it that, is the initiation of the last days. That is, we live in the last days according to how the New Testament authors use that phrase. So what Peter is saying, if you'll allow me to sort of help along the way here, is above all, verse 3, we're in chapter 3, verse 3, above all, you must understand that today, right, the last days, in these times, Peter is saying, now almost 2,000 years ago, uh, in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So Peter is saying this is going to be what goes on in these last days. Once we have the Christ event, that he comes, that he dies for our sins, that he conquers death and resurrection, that he ascends to the right hand of the Father, that he sends the Holy Spirit, once that happens, we're going to end up with scoffers who are going to come along the way. And here's what they're going to say. Where is this coming, he promised. Remember, Jesus said he'd come back, and so far he hasn't come back. And so in their scoffingness, uh, they say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, uh, ancestors, depending on your translation, it's really the patriarchs. Ever since sort of the founding of Israel, it's kind of a a, a Jewish phrase, uh, our patriarchs, that would be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Sometimes ancestors or patriarchs would refer to Joseph as well. Sometimes not. It doesn't really matter. The, The the founders, if you will, Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob, ever since they died, everything goes on uh, as it has since the beginning of creation. So Jesus is not coming back. They're scoffing. They're scoffing at the word of God. You need to be fearful because there's going to be a global flood. But God said there won't be a global flood. What are they doing? They're scoffing at God. They're scoffing at the word of God. But they deliberately, verse 5, forget that long ago, by God's word, the very thing they're scoffing at, remember they're scoffing, they're saying, we're going to have a global flood. God says, never again will there be a global flood. 
okay? It, that, that's the scoffing. They deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. We could kind of detail that. We go to Genesis chapter 1 and begin in verse 6, and we see the waters, and the waters get separated. There's waters involved in the sky, and then, and, and then there's waters that are put in their place so that you can have land and sea. And so water plays a major role in Genesis 1 from verse 6 through verse 10, probably what Peter is referring to here is this role of water, but ultimately all of it created by the word of God. That is, God speaks, let there be light, and there's light by the word of God. Later in the book of John, we're going to find out, of course, that that word of God is actually the son of God, that it is through the son of God that the father created all things, a detail that'll come only once you get to the New Testament. So Peter writes that these scoffers deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, Excuse me. Uh, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world uh, uh, of that time was deluged and destroyed. Again, a reference, or, or not again, now a reference to the flood. That is, God said, I'm going to flood the whole world warns Noah, Noah builds the ark. There's a period of time where people are given to repent and return to the Lord, which seems to have been able to hold off the flood had anyone done that. Apparently, no one does that. The flood comes, Noah and his family and the appropriate animals get on the boat, and the boat is really the form of salvation. All die at the hands of water in the flood, other than Noah and all those, all the living beings uh, on the boat. And, And so we see we see here this idea that, that Peter wants to remind his, his believers, these, these believers who are under persecution. Persecution's a big theme in Peter, excuse me, both in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, that, that the believers he's writing to are going through very difficult times. Uh, things are very difficult for them. And so he wants to remind them and he wants to encourage them. And that's why we're getting this sort of explanation here. And, and, and he's saying things that, that would, uh, especially to Jews who would know their Old Testaments, their Hebrew scriptures, that it would really echo with them. So even in verse 5 here, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. Things like Psalm 33, 6, just allow me to read that, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made in their starry host, the breath of his mouth. By the word of the Lord, that is, God speaks these things into existence. Obviously, Genesis 1 details that, Psalm 33 affirms that, and now in this case, Peter is reminding these persecuted believers, these dear brothers and sisters, uh, of those same uh, truths. And so uh, God creates all things, but then God also can destroy things. The very substance that he used early in creation, water, to create, to create separation, to have land and sea and, 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 and to create sky and so on, now is used to flood uh, the whole earth, verse 6. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So the scoffers, remember what they're saying, he's not coming back. 
I mean, he didn't come last year. He didn't come 10 years ago. He didn't come 100 years ago. He didn't come 1,000 years ago. He didn't come 3,000 years ago. He's not coming back. I guess it wouldn't, 3,000 years ago, it wouldn't be back. That would, uh, it's too many years, sorry. We can really only go to about 2,000, not, not quite even. Nonetheless, the scoffers scoff. <clears throat> And, and so the, the, the Peter is reminding uh, of the, that, that, in other words, the word of God says Christ will return. The scoffer is saying he won't return, he hasn't returned yet, it is scoffing at God's word, right? It's, it's, it's making fun of the fact that God's word isn't true. That's what they're suggesting, God's word isn't true. And Peter's saying it's, it's ironic you would say God's word isn't true since all creation is a product of God's word. It's ironic that you would say God's word isn't true when the destruction of creation, the global flood with Noah, was all by the word of God, by the hand of God, by the work of God. And so now, Peter, so he, he goes to creation, he goes to Noah's flood, and now he goes forward in, in, in verse 7 to the future by the same word, the present heavens and earth, the current situation that we find ourselves in, are reserved for fire, uh, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And, and, and so Peter is trying to remind believers that it's the word of the God, word of God that created all things, it's through God's word that he destroyed in judgment the world one time and further made the promise that he'd never flood the world again. And we already uh, looked briefly at that from Genesis chapter 9. And now we're seeing that by that same word that that in the future there's going to be coming a judgment. In other words, maybe not a great time to scoff because one day you'll have to stand in front of the Lord for your scoffing. All right, now hang on. Now, let's just remember, because we're reading in English here, and that's all pretty good, but this was written by uh, uh, a, a primarily a fisherman, uh, and I don't know his level of Greek, but, but what we're going to get here is going to become really, really challenging as to how it's worded, and we're going to have to work through this next section uh, uh, carefully uh, to follow Peter's thinking and sort of have some, some understanding here. So verse 8. So do not forget, and before I read the rest of verse 8, um, let me read you again verse 1. So in verse 1, he says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders. So number one, this is going to be a reminder. Now halfway through the reminder, he says, hold it, don't forget. Don't forget this, verse 8, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. What, Peter, what is it that we're not supposed to forget? With the Lord... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. A passage you've undoubtedly heard uh, before and probably have it memorized and so on. Uh, and, and so sometimes you say, okay, well, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years. So, so Genesis, six days of creation, so it must have taken 6,000 years, right? And you do the math in your head and so on. And, and then we're moving things around and so on. Well, no, it's like that. It, it isn't that. It's that time doesn't work the same for God. That, that is, God sits above all creation and can see all things. That is, God can look at a hundred years ago and he can look at a hundred years from now and that be in his eternal present. How could God do that? Well, I don't know. I, I'm not God, but everything in God's uh, uh, eyes is present. And so Peter's using this. It, it's, it's like time that feels a long time to us, a big number, is really very short to God. It's in his immediate present. Uh, stuff to us that feels very, very short, very, very quick, like a day, 
Well, well, God sees all things within that. That is, that, that, that is a huge amount that God is sovereign over, even the single day. And so this isn't supposed to be some kind of a mathematical formula. Now you work backwards and you're recalculating days into thousands of years and thousands of years. That's not, it's like that. It, it, it's like the fact that time is different for God. Uh, theologians would probably want to say it this way, God is timeless. The hard part is we're not, and so it's really hard. How do you think about timelessness, right? It's hard to think about the fact that God has existed eternally. That is, he has no beginning. He has always existed. Our universe has not existed eternally. He spoke it into existence. He created all things. But God himself has existed for all eternity. And so Peter says, don't forget this, that timing for God is very different than timing for us. And, and, and this is kind of a, uh, 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 something that uh, has come up before. Psalm 90, verse 4, as just an illustration, a thousand years in your sight is like a day has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. The psalmist is, in, in this case, in Psalm 90, praising the Lord for his sovereignty over time. That, that, is, that, that is, time is going to be an issue. So, so let's back up and kind of remember the context here. So Peter is writing to believers who are struggling. They're in persecution. They live within the Roman Empire, and the, Rome, the Roman Empire is unspeakably wicked. And, and, and so it's hard. These are hard times that they're living in, and Peter wants to encourage them, and he wants to remind them. And so he says, don't, don't get confused with the, the days these days as you're struggling. Time works differently from God. Don't forget this. With the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And then he goes on to explain why he said that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow, but the Lord is patient. He wants to make sure, Peter wants to make sure that people don't misunderstand what God is doing. You see, because it's very easy in the craziness of our world to say a thing that is a very good thing to say. Come, Lord Jesus, right? This is crazy. This is nuts. Men are born, boys are born, and they don't apparently know that they're boys, and girls don't know that. I mean, right is wrong, and wrong is right, and everything's getting turned up. So it's crazy. Come, Lord Jesus. Not a bad thing to say. But why hasn't he come? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. In other words, God isn't hesitant. Ah, should I come now? Oh, let I'll give it six more weeks. Let's see if anything kind of smooths out. Okay, this is not how the Lord works. Okay, He's, he is, instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Like, like maybe the scoffers, right? The scoffers who scoff at the Lord, they, are not, they don't know the Lord, they don't believe the Lord. The Lord doesn't desire them to perish. Uh, not only the scoffers, but what about unbelievers who simply are feeling the fear that scoffers create, right? They're scoffing at the word of the Lord, they're creating fear, and there are unbelievers who feel fearful. The Lord doesn't desire them to die, and, and so, in his, he is not slow, but he is right now 
patient. As a matter of fact, this is who God has always been. You go back to the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Interesting that I would use Ezekiel. Ezekiel was written at a time when when Judah was in exile, in the seven-year exile in Babylon, and they were living sort of in someone else's land because they'd been pulled out of their own land by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, who had attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. And they too were living in difficult times. And God says, "I I don't want anyone to die. It's a good time to repent and believe. Romans 2 verse 4, do uh, you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Why didn't God come yesterday? Surely yesterday was bad enough. Simple. He's patient. He doesn't desire that all the wicked on our earth today, and it looks like we have a lot of them, doesn't it? Right? If we watch the news, if we engage in what's going on, it looks like there's a lot of wickedness, there's a lot of evil. And so we say, why don't you come, Lord? It's some, I don't want all those wicked to die without knowing me. And, and, and so we start to see this purpose, not realizing, Paul writes, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That is, he gives a little more time. He's not slow, he's patient. It's not slow. Remember that, right? Because this is the reminder Peter wants us to see. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, this is good and pleases our God and Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is why God has not come yet. He is not slow. He is patient. Why? He wants all people to come to a knowledge of truth. Now, I have no idea what was in Peter's mind when he, uh, he wrote this, but I would guess, if you made me guess, I would guess that he was thinking back to this instance. That is, uh, there was a time when he was uh, with Jesus and the disciples were with Jesus. And they'd been up on the Temple Mount and they'd seen the Temple Mount was amazing. It was, we, we in our culture, we here in Frisco and Plano and so on, we have lots of campuses. This church has multiple buildings. It's kind of a campus. And you could go down there and you could go, what direction we that way, to uh, Collin County and that, and that college has a campus, right? A bunch of buildings and it's a whole campus layout and so on. And we could go and there's, there's where EDS was. I can't remember what they're called now, but that was a campus. And there's big campuses, right? Frito-Lay's got a huge campus over there and it's shaped like a Dorito. Did you know it's shaped like a Dorito? Their main building is shaped like a Dorito. I remember the first time I was in there, I'm like, do we get Doritos? You're shaped like a Dorito. No Doritos. So anyway, um, doesn't matter. But campuses are not kind of new to us. The only campus, the only idea of a big place so big it had multiple buildings that the disciples ever would have seen in their lifetime was the temple, okay? There's no campus up in Galilee. There's no campus settings in Nazareth. There's nothing down in Jericho that's a campus. And so in Matthew 24, the disciples are marveling at the temple and the temple mount and the gold and, and all the structures there that would have been there in that first century uh, around the temple campus. And, and they ask Jesus about, like, what's going to happen? I mean, look at this amazing campus. Look at this temple campus. And Jesus says, it's all going to get destroyed, And then he says in verse 14, Matthew 24, verse 14, and this is my guess as to what was in Peter's mind when he wrote this. Jesus says to his disciples, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, 
and then the end will come. What are we waiting for? The gospel. It's not about Middle East oil. It's not about peace agreements. It's not about, well, who is the bear and who is the eagle and how does that work together? None of those things are the hinging factor. It's not about economies and one world and and marks of the beast and so on. It's not about any of those things. The hinge point that we're waiting for, the reason the Lord hasn't come, and he's not slow, right? Don't, Don't forget that. God's not slow. The reason he's patient is the gospel, At the center of Christ's return is the gospel. Once the gospel, Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end comes. So while the world is worried about global warming and possibly the, the, the caps melting and so on, and by the way, we need to be good stewards of the earth. This is not somehow we should, none of that matters. But as good stewards of the earth, we're given dominion of the earth. We're called to rule the earth on behalf of God. We are given rulership of it. And, and so we are to do that and to do that well. But the thing that flips the switch, the thing that brings Christ back is the gospel. It just has to reach the nations. Remember, God's goal is no one dies. God's goal is everyone believes. God's goal is everyone knows the truth. So let's not forget our context. So Peter is writing to encourage these believers who are struggling. And and, and in their struggle, uh, uh, Peter wants to remind them they're scoffers. And in the scoffing, they're they're undermining the words of God. And and so God says things like there'll never be a global flood. And some are saying we need to fear a possible global flood. At this current rate, I think it'll take about 11 million years for everything to actually flood. That's pretty slow. Hopefully we can figure out along the way as the water comes up, you know, a millimeter a year, how to build a boat or something, but I don't know. Uh, but, but, but the hinge point uh, of, of what Peter points to then is back to the gospel. But back to the gospel message. That is really the issue at hand. So if you said to me, what are we supposed to do? I mean, our whole world's gone crazy. What should we do? Oh, I got one for you. Share the gospel. Right? I mean, that's what he's saying. That is, the gospel must go forward. Lisa encounters someone on an airplane, and she shares a couple of verses. She has the opportunity to share the gospel. And and, and so the good news is something that we share. It's something that we support as others go and share. Marathon's a great illustration of that, supporting and helping those who are all over the place sharing the gospel. And it's something that we, well, that we live It's not only going and talking to others, it's a way of life. And this is where Peter's going to kind of turn us to now as he's talking about this idea. And this is where things get get, get really uh, interesting. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Okay, the day of the Lord, there's a day coming. It's been prophesied from Old Testament prophets. Many of them, about half of them, mention the coming day of the Lord when, when judgment will come and nations will be uh, uh, brought to bear and, 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 and so on. Day of the Lord, day of the Lord. And it's going to come like a thief, meaning precisely when you don't expect it. Right? That's when the thief comes. The thief doesn't come when you got everything secure and everything put away and everything locked up the way it should be. The thief comes when you accidentally left this out and you didn't realize that and that window was open and all that. Right? The thief comes at an unexpected time. So when someone out there somewhere says, hey, I've figured out the day, okay? cross that one off your list. You know he's not coming that day. 
You know that. First of all, God says, don't do that. So a good, a good obedience to that would be, don't do that. Okay? But if someone does it, that's not like the thief. Hey, everyone get ready. Your house is going to be burglarized next Thursday. That's, that's just not how it works. He, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is unexpected. 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 <clears throat> the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Well, there's some words in here in this verse 10 construction. One of the things I actually thought of doing was reading this in many different versions, just to show you how many different ways. I'm reading the NIV, the 2011 version of the NIV. But all these translations struggling at how to use these words and how to say this correctly in light of what the original, how the original is rendered. So the day of the Lord will come like a surprise, right? Like a, like a thief. Uh, it'll come, the heavens will disappear and roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. The elements. Well, that's the word that's pretty tricky to render is what, what are the elements? And, and so when we look at that word that Peter is using there, the elements in verse 10, like what are those elements? Well, we can find that word used in other places and that can kind of help us understand here because the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth will be, uh, uh, the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare, okay? Or some translations will say, which is a good translation, laid bare is very good. Another good translation is will be revealed. Everything will be revealed. Everything will be shown. And so the day of the Lord is the day when everything gets shown. Well, what, what would get shown? Well, the day of the Lord, well, one of the things that gets shown is Jesus, right? He will come. It'll be laid bare. It'll be revealed. Here's Jesus, and everyone will see him. And, and so the, the, the revealing, the laid bearing, uh, uh, it, it, we've got to sort of understand a little more about it. And one of the hardest words and one of the hardest phrases that, that, that we struggle with, this idea of the elements will be destroyed by fire. That same word is used in Galatians chapter 4. Paul uses that, Galatians 4 verse 3. Paul writes, so also when we were uh, 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 under age, we were in slavery under the elemental, there's the word, spiritual forces of the world. When we were not a believer yet, Paul is writing, Galatians chapter 4, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Paul will use that word again in Colossians chapter 2, 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. So the idea of the elements the idea of things being laid bare. The elements are these spiritual forces of evil. It would be like Satan and his dominion, his, his reign, his deceptiveness. There are people today who are putting forward fearful philosophies, fearful ideas, and they believe them 100%, right? They actually believe the things that they're saying because they've been blinded by the evil one. But one day the day of the Lord, which will come unexpectedly, that blinding will be revealed, laid bare. Satan and, 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 and that evil influence will be destroyed. 
That's what Peter is saying here in verse 10. And so these elemental, what he says, the elements will be destroyed by fire. That is, that is the evil influence on our world. That's how Paul uses that same word. Uh, I've given two illustrations. There's actually five or six in the New Testament. And every time that idea of elemental things and those elemental ideas is this idea uh, of the spiritual forces that are against Christ or against God, the, the, the forces of the demons, the demonic uh, realm, if you will. And one day when the Lord comes, that's gotten rid of. There's no more being blinded by Satan because Satan will be destroyed. Ultimately, we get details in the book of Revelation on that. Let's stick with Peter again, verse 11. So from verse 10 to verse 11, since everything will be, and here's a hard rendering, destroyed or laid bare or revealed, uh, since everything will be now known is the idea here. Since everything will be revealed or destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So here's the message. Be holy. Share the gospel. That's our response to a fearful world scoffing at the word of the Lord. We live holy lives. See it here in verse 11, the end of verse 11 into verse 12. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Speed its coming? You mean we could make him come sooner? Sure. What are we waiting for? The gospel must reach the nations, and then the end will come, right? So we as a church, and I'm not really referring to here as Stonebriar, but much more as the global church, the believers in Christ, the body of Christ, Christ's hands and feet, his arms and legs, his knees and elbows, we have a mission. We were, we, we were given a, a mission, a mission directive. He, he, he did this, Jesus did this, just as he was about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, uh, he, he commissioned his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Well, because I'm not coming back till all nations have disciples in them. How many? Don't know. Keep making them until he comes, then we'll know, right? He doesn't give us the number. He says, we'll go. And so uh, how do we disciple make? And disciple simply means learner. We are to make people into learners of God, followers. And so what are we all doing here this morning? We're on Zoom. We're here live. What are we doing? We're learning, right? We're being reminded by Peter's words. We're being hopefully encouraged that, well, the world is often spitting out a, 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 a tone of fear. We have nothing to be afraid of, right? Paul says to live is Christ, and the biggest weapon that the world would have against us, death? Well, that's actually to gain. It's not that we live foolishly, we don't live recklessly, but we recognize we don't need to live in fear. Number one, the death rate has not moved at all during the coronavirus, 100%, right? Every one of us has an appointed time to die. We don't make light of that, that's not that, but, but that's a reality. But for the believer, as Paul says, death is gain, that is presence with Christ, and ultimately, we, we can't wait for the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is when, 
with the day of the Lord, if Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, if Jesus is in the very throne room of God right now, the day of the Lord is when he steps out. So if we wanted to understand the day of the Lord, if we wanted to understand what's it like when Jesus steps out of the throne room of God, which is where he is right now, what's that stepping out going to look like? I want to give you uh, an an idea. I want a a way to think about this. And this is where it's helpful if we understand what was some of the things going on in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God gave us a, a vision and a model of what was yet to come. And so he did some interesting things. And when we're reading the Old Testament, often we get lost in some of the details and it, it, it gets bogged down. You, you know, you're reading Genesis. It's a pretty good story. There's a lot of good things going on. You follow in the story of Joseph. It's an amazing story with his brothers. And, you know, it's me, you know, whoa. And everyone's seeing, you know, you're reading that. You read Exodus and, and then you got the t- 10 plagues and everything. It's all amazing. And then you get into chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of dimensions for a rectangular box that's covered in gold, right? You've got to build this, this ark, ark of the covenant. And then you've got to build a tabernacle. And we got pole heights, and we got stitches, and we got colors, and we got which is lined with what, and what can touch what, and what can't touch what. And we got dimensions going on. And we go, oh my goodness, what is this? It's a vision of the throne room of God. And at the center of the tabernacle, that temple, that, there's, that, that, that tent, excuse me, that tent that they're supposed to build in the wilderness, which is going to represent God's presence. You remember, there's a, there's a section of it in the center that no one gets to go into uh, other than one person once a year, where the very place of God dwells. It's the only thing in the Bible that is the same length and width and height. Well, it's not the only thing because it, it's that in the tabernacle, that tent, and later when Solomon builds his temple, he also has a room inside the temple. It's the center room, which is the same length and width and height, and and that's the throne room of God in the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies, but there is really one more. It's in Revelation when this new city, Jerusalem, comes down, and it's the same length and width and height. In other words, if we want to see what happens when Jesus is going to step out of the throne room and come back the day of the Lord, then let's just look and see what happens when the high priest steps out of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. So make your way to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25, we see here a reminder and a little image of what is it like when someone comes out of the presence of God. What is that going to look like? Leviticus 25. Does everyone understand why we're going there? The Old Testament is giving us a little picture, a little vision of what God is like. In the tabernacle and its arrangement, the high priests and their responsibilities, all the priests and their clothing and their responsibilities, the sacrificial system, all of that is to help us understand a little more about God. You, You know, they sacrifice thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of animals just to understand that Christ was going to give his life once for all. Right? The, the sacrificial system was a little sign of, of our Savior and what he does for us. Of course, he is the Lamb of God, but he wasn't merely the Lamb or our Lamb. He's the very Son of God. And so in Leviticus 25, we have a passage that helps us understand what happens when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. Interesting, but for our purpose, what happens when he comes out? That's what we want to see, because that's what happens. That's what institutes the day of the Lord. 
Leviticus 25, beginning in verse 8. Count off seven, seven Sabbath years. Okay, so now we've got to understand a little bit of how Israel was structured because God wanted them to be sort of this living illustration, this living example of who he was. So every seventh day was the Sabbath, okay? Right, the Saturday, the seventh day of the week was the Sabbath. I think we probably know that, and they had certain rules about the Sabbath. Every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year, that is to be a year of rest, that literally they were supposed to let the land rest from farming it so the land could be rejuvenated. And I think even today farming practices, we do rotating things where the land lays, lays for a year, right, and lets the land rejuvenate and so on. And so every seventh year was a Sabbath. So God is saying here, count off seven Sabbath years, that is seven times seven years. So every seventh year is a Sabbath, so count off seven of them if you will, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Okay, so seven Sabbath years, a Sabbath year is every seven years, so it's seven times seven, seven times seven is 49. We all good? If not, just reread that over and over. It's all there in one verse. Uh, Verse nine, then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. Well, if you know Israel's calendar, the 10th day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Okay, just real briefly, every year sins add up. We all sin, we sin as a people, we sin as a nation. And so what God wanted was a reminder that even if we confess our sins, that there's still kind of a a corporate sin. And, And so every year on the day of atonement, they would go through a process of confessing their sin as a people, as a nation, as the people of God, the the Israelites, and that was called the Day of Atonement. They'd sacrifice a goat in a very particular way, and that sacrificial goat literally carried the sins of the nation, and and they were wiped clean before the Lord. That's called the Day of the Lord, the Day of, uh, excuse me, the Day of Atonement. Okay, so now we've got seven times seven, we've got 49 years, then we sound the trumpet on the Day of Atonement, that is the seventh uh, month and the tenth day. You sound it throughout the land. Verse 10, consecrate the 50th year. So we've gone seven Sabbaths, seven Sabbath years, and a Sabbath year is every seven. So that's the 49. So that 50th year gets consecrated after the 49, the 50th year, consecrate the 50th year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property uh, and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows for it. It's, uh, 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 for what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. And we get some more details. Now in Israel, everyone knew what tribe they were from, right? Israel had 12 tribes that the land was allotted to, and and, and so they knew where their family heritage was from. And we see glimpses of that, like in the New Testament. Why did Joseph and Mary go down to Bethlehem? Well, because they're from the tribe of uh, Judah, and yet they were living up north in Nazareth, so they need to go back, back to where their families are from. The Israelites knew that. And so you'd go back and you'd have this jubilee, this celebration. What initiated the jubilee? So, so let, let's not forget what the, what the Day of Atonement is. So, so there's a goat and there's a bunch of practices and the, and the high priest, this only happens once a year on the 10th day of the 7th month, 
And, and the high priest takes the goat in and sacrifices the blood uh, on the altar in the appropriate manner and comes out from the sacrifice. And you can imagine his hands at this point. And when he comes out, blow the trumpet. Why? They're forgiven. Right? And, and so that image... Leviticus 25, is the image that Paul talks about to the church of Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command in the voice of the archangel and with the sound of a trumpet from God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So it always is with the Lord. That is, the trumpet is going to be the institution, the initiation uh, of this event. The high priest goes into uh, uh, the, the Holy of Holies and sacrifices the goat on the altar in the appropriate way for the Day of Atonement. And when he comes out still covered in blood, the trumpet is blown. Jubilee. Debts are forgiven. You don't owe anything anymore. Land is returned. You had to sell some of your land to pay off this and, and, and for that situation. And everything is revived and refreshed, liberated. Paul will write about this in 1 Corinthians 15, in, in 51 and 52. Uh, he writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And so the completion of the sacrifice in the Old Testament, Leviticus 25, the high priest comes out of the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, the trumpet sounds, your sins are forgiven, your debts are forgiven, you're free. You go back and inherit the land that always was belonged to your family. Old Testament. New Testament. Jesus comes and he's preaching to these people on this mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And all these people uh, are there and he's turning their culture inside out. And he says, blessed are the meek for they inherit the earth. The whole thing. And, and so when the end comes, when the day of the Lord comes, it is a day of... The high priest, our high priest, is going to step out of the throne room of God of Jubilee. Sins are forgiven. Debts are paid. Everything belongs to us. The meek inherit the earth. And, and, and so it's important to understand what Peter is trying to encourage these people with, is that the day of the Lord, when's it coming? Well, it's going to come like a thief. It's going to be unexpected. But when it comes for the believer, jubilee. It's all forgiven. It's all made clean. Our high priest is stepping out of the throne room of God and coming to redeem us. You want to see it? Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Let's take a quick look at Jesus talking about this. You'll see it. It's going to shock the Jews when he does this. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is just beginning his ministry. He's been baptized by John. It's 12 o'clock. It, for those of you on Zoom, is it 12 o'clock there too, or is that just for us? Is there like a delay? Maybe you're at 1156. Luke, Luke, Luke chapter 2. Uh, chapter 4, excuse me, Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Jesus has begun his ministry. He's been baptized by John. He goes home. Nazareth, everyone knows him. Joseph and Mary's kid. 
carpenter guy. He goes home. Uh, he's in the synagogue. He's going to read, read the scroll. And so here's what he reads. Picking it up in verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is Isaiah 61, if you're looking for it. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. That's what happened at his baptism to proclaim the good news to the poor. Notice what's at stake, the gospel, the proclamation of the good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, that would be liberty, and to recover the sight of the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. What's that? Jubilee. What's next? What's actually coming? Not global flooding. I guarantee you global flooding is not coming. What's next? Well, at the, unaccepted, at the unexpected moment, jubilee, the day of the Lord. But not so for unbelievers. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. For the believer, jubilee. All sins are forgiven. All debts are paid. Everything is yours. You shall inherit the earth. For those who don't know, judgment. So when's the day of the Lord coming? Well, the Lord desires everyone to go through jubilee and no one to have to go through judgment. And so he's patient. He's not slow, but he's patient. And so we close back in our passage, 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed or laid bare in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day uh, of God and speed its coming, that the day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements, that is those spiritual forces of evil, will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Father, we are so grateful that we have something to look forward to. And in a world where often messages of fear and and, and, uh, uh, challenge are, are being put forward, that we have our hope and that we have our calling, our mission, that we are called to be bearers of the gospel, to live godly and holy lives, as Peter has reminded us, and to see that the gospel reaches the nations. For when the nations are reached at the appropriate time, The trumpet sounds, and Christ will step out of the throne room, uh, your very throne room, and come to redeem us. And for those who do not know, come to bring and resurrect them to a time of eternal judgment. And so, Father, we we are weary of what goes on today in our culture, but we are mindful that you have called us to a task. And so I pray that you would help us to continue to accomplish your purpose and your mission for the church, for the fruitfulness of the gospel, that your message would continue to be uh, um, told and taught and preached and magnified through the nations, that people would be reminded that your very words are true and that we have nothing to fear because we have a Savior in Jesus. Help us to live righteously until Christ comes. Amen.